MSW Media. This week, former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen filed a sentencing memorandum alleging that Trump's lawyers and White House staff were briefed on his testimony to Congress before he testified falsely. Shortly thereafter, Donald Trump tweeted praise of Roger Stone for refusing to cooperate with the investigation of special counsel Robert Mueller, raising questions of whether he was engaging in witness tampering. What do these latest revelations mean for the Trump presidency? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a comedian and WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, there's a lot to talk about uh, today. Now, we are recording this uh, at 8 o'clock Eastern, uh, 7, 7 p.m. Central uh, on December 4th. So today is supposed to be the day that Mueller is going to be filing Michael Flynn's sentencing memorandum, but it has not dropped yet. But we have a lot to discuss. I, you know, I think we had thought about even recording something over the weekend because there have been so many developments. Right. And of course, he has five more hours. So um, I've got my phone open in uh, case uh, we have any any developing news while we're talking. Well, great. Look, it seems like things are developing all the time. We've been trying to keep up by having more frequent podcasts and we'll continue to do it because a lot of listeners have been asking for it. Uh, I will say that, um, you know, this time I'm going to try to talk about some of the bigger topics and sort of the wa- the wide ranging topics that we have, uh, because, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the questions that we've been getting, and it's been really helpful to hear people's questions, have been some of the big issues of um, why, for example, the president can't be indicted. Um, I know a lot of people are wondering whether or not there's going to be a report or not. And I think our guests will have something interesting to say about that. Um, right. And, uh, you know, so we'll have, I think, a lot of great topics to talk about. So let's bring in Ken White. Uh, some of you know Ken White uh, by the moniker uh, Pope Hat on Twitter, uh, which is kind of goofy, but he's a serious guy who is a former federal prosecutor. Uh, he's also um, a First Amendment lawyer and a guy who writes his own, you know, I think, very intelligent explanations of legal issues. Welcome to the show, Ken. Great to have you on. Thank you for having me. So we had, I think, a couple of really important pieces of news recently. You know, one of one of them was the um, sentencing memorandum of uh, Michael Cohen, which was really revealing. I thought more revealing um, than I anticipated it would be. And perhaps the most interesting piece of that sentencing memorandum was um, he, the, Michael Cohen's attorney alleging that the White House was briefed, uh, excuse me, White House staff were briefed, uh, as well as 
uh, Trump's attorneys were briefed on Michael Cohen's statements to Congress before he made that, those statements. Now, I should note that he doesn't allege that Cohen uh, told them about the false statements. He doesn't allege that that um, that uh, Cohen um, was told by them to lie. He doesn't allege that Cohen, um, you know, believes that they knew that those statements were false. All he says is that he was in contact with them. But certainly the impression one is left with from the filing is that Cohen's attorney believes, or at least would like the, the judge to believe, that uh, Cohen was um, involved in a conspiracy to lie to Congress and he wasn't doing this on his own. Is that Would that be fair to say? Well, I think at the very least, the impression they're trying to cultivate and the impression that uh, special counsel Robert Mueller was trying to cultivate with uh, the new charge is that the president knew that Cohen was lying to Congress. It's not the same as telling him to lie, and it's not necessarily the same as conspiring with him to lie. But I, I think if, particularly with the added information in the sentencing brief that the White House was being briefed about what was going on, I think it's inescapable that the president did know that he was lying. And that's, to me, pretty big, uh, knowing that your lawyer is lying to Congress to help you, even if you haven't specifically asked him to do so. And uh, that, again, because we're dealing in this um, somewhat ambiguous twilight zone where we're not necessarily talking about what the president could be charged with in a criminal court, but what might be presented to Congress as uh, an article of impeachment, I think that very much could be seen as something that's a high crime or misdemeanor. You know, Ken, you ra- you kind of uh, get to, I think, an interesting point that I hadn't considered before. So if Cohen was uh, the an attorney for President Trump, he was not um, he, obviously Trump's only attorney. He wasn't representing him as to Russia-related matters. I don't think he could because he was also a subject of that investigation. And I don't think he was testifying in his capacity as Trump's lawyer. But would... Cohen have had an obligation to keep Trump apprised of his testimony because because of his attorney-client relationship with him? I mean, typically, you do have an obligation to your clients. Well, sure. But I mean, you know, kind of analyzing Cohen's behavior under the rubric of normal, proper uh, attorney-client behavior is, is, I think, a bit of a farce. I mean, we know that he was surreptitiously recording at least some conversations with Trump and uh, doing other things that attorneys normally don't do. So um, I I don't know if he was obligated to. I suppose that at the point at which he had that obligation, I think it would probably develop into a conflict of interest because he would have a sort of a conflict between his interest in testifying to Congress and his client's interest in uh, you know, the investigation that's going on. I think that's, I think that's right. And, you know, one, I think one question that that raises that I, th- I think I, we have both considered, and I think it's a very interesting question, is why the heck did Mueller choose to file those new charges against Cohen in the first place? Now, keep in mind, there's already been uh, charges against Cohen to which he already pled guilty in a very, uh, very anticipated change of plea hearing in which he directly implicated Donald Trump. And so 
given that, why did why did Mueller uh, feel the need, in, in your view, why did Mueller feel the need to file this additional charge um, that was essentially unrelated to the crimes that that Cohen originally pled guilty to? Well, I think you're right that he didn't need to. And uh, you know, as we both know, this one more felony on top of eight or however many others he already pled to doesn't make much of a difference in terms of punishing uh, or deterring or anything like that. It's not going to have any impact on his sentence, I think. The other stuff he did, the tax stuff, is the stuff that generates the the guidelines kick in terms of what the recommended sentences. Uh, I, I really think that he is doing it uh, as exposition. He, uh, this is demonstrating, uh, first of all, it's deterring people from lying to Congress. It's demonstrating where the investigation is going and that it is closing in on people lying about uh, the Trump campaign's activities. And it may well, in effect, be a way to uh, convey to the public and to Congress without going through the middleman of uh, the new acting AG, who is certainly not a supporter of the special counsel. So you use that fancy word exposition, but essentially the the point I think you, you the point it sounds like you're making is you believe that Mueller filed those charges because he wanted um, the public to know about the progress of his investigation. In part, I think it's to tell the story and bring it to the attention of the public and Congress. It may also set up um, more things to come. So in other words, if you're going to indict someone else for lying to Congress or lying to the FBI and you're going to rely on Michael Cohen's testimony, it's better to have him out front early admitting I lied and this is the truth. I think that if you... um, if you just charge into charging someone else and say, you know, Cohen supports this, they're going to say, well, Cohen said the same thing before Congress. So why are you using him as a witness? Now this basically tells the story and conveys that this is what we think the truth is. And we may go next against other people who told this lie, either the Congress or to the FBI. So let me just explain for listeners why this question is maybe more interesting to me and Ken than it may be to all of you. I think you 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 touched on it, Ken, in that really the judge could have considered this conduct as part of the existing criminal case. Mueller would have been obligated to tell the judge about this additional crime, and he could have done so without filing new charges, and the judge would have considered it. And as you pointed out, it probably would not have changed the sentence whether he was charged with that crime. Uh, formally or not. Uh, And so, you know, it's an interesting legal question. It it suggests Mueller's doing something that in a a run-of-the-mill case you might not do. I think you know what your your latest comment is more along the lines of what I was thinking. You know, my my take on it was that Mueller plans to use or intent, you know, or at least has things he may use Michael Cohen as a cooperator. If he does that, and there's a lie that Cohen told that was not that, that, that an argument could be made he didn't pay for, at least in front of a jury, um, that that might be a problem. And what I mean by that is when uh, federal prosecutors put cooperators on the witness stand, they often get um, treated poorly by the defense attorney under with understandably. We saw that happen in the Paul Manafort trial. And if um 
it, it looks like Michael Cohen wasn't got a break or got a special deal or wasn't charged with something he could have. It might, um, you know, the defense might be able to argue that that Mueller was hiding his lies. Here, it's all out in the open. Uh, it's clear he's paying whatever price he's going to pay for it, which I think, as you assess, is probably going to be not much, given that he's already been charged with all these other crimes. That was my take, and it's not entirely different from yours, but it's a little bit a little bit different. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's very typical, as you know, that there's a tension between, on the one hand, cutting a cooperator a break so that they want to cooperate and testify, and on the other hand, cutting them such a break that they get torn apart on cross-examination, and the jury told they're only doing this because they're getting such a break. Uh, so I think that's it. And I, I also just think that the the concept of of Cohen pleading to this prepares and lays the way for what happens next. So let's talk a little bit um, about what it, about this topic on a, on a broader scale, because one thing I read uh, very recently, Ken, is you wrote a great op-ed in The New York Times in which you talked about uh, uh, what I'll term the shenanigans uh, between Manafort's attorneys and Trump's attorneys. And I think came to essentially the same conclusion that I did both on Twitter and in my last podcast, which, by the way, was thanks to all of you listeners. It was our highest rated podcast ever. Um and, you know, you essentially concluded that those uh, those statements between Manafort's attorneys and Trump's attorneys were not privileged. But you also had an interesting line or two in there in which you said that, you know, you took the view that uh, Mueller may not issue a, a report at the end of his investigation, but might be telling us whatever he finds through indictments and other types of court filings. Can you t- explain that view for us on the podcast? Yeah. So basically, the idea is that uh, the the special counsel regulation requires a special counsel to wrap up with a report that's given to the acting uh, AG, and the acting AG decides what to do with it, both whether or not to make it public in general, and to what extent and how much and in what way to convey it to Congress. So here you've got. Uh, in uh, Whitaker, somebody who is very pro-Trump, uh, protective of Trump, and has been very critical before being appointed at the special counsel investigation. And um, Robert Mueller may anticipate that he will try to suppress any report and that it will not reliably get released to the public or maybe not even completely to Congress. So by doing sort of speaking indictments like this one, uh, or, or information against uh, Michael Cohen, he puts into the public record some of the same things that might go into that report. And that might happen through um, through indictments and informations and through sentencing briefs and through who knows what else. Hey, guys, uh, there's a, a, one of your followers uh, or, or followers of both of yours says, as it appears Mueller might be winding down the investigation on his initial probe, who would handle any broader criminal activity such as illegal uh, use of inaugural funds, money laundering, tax evasion, racketeering, those kinds of things? So I guess let me just take that first and say that anything at the end of this that is not charged, that is still out there, 
could be referred by Mueller to other parts of the Justice Department. And we've already seen that happen, for example, in the now famous investigation that resulted in charges against Michael Cohen and is continuing to result in an investigation of of individuals within the Trump organization. So um, and I believe there have been other uh, uh, cases that Mueller has referred to uh, the National Security Division of the Justice Department. So that's what I would expect to happen. Uh, with with other pieces of this. And if they aren't investigated by the Justice Department, you can certainly expect some state attorney generals like the New York attorney general to to pursue those uh, matters as well. Ken? Yeah, I agree with that. I think they could very easily be going to uh, U.S. attorney's offices and state attorney general's offices all over the place. The, the more complicated and arguably interesting question is what happens with uh, things that suggest criminal conduct by the president himself. And there we get into uh, the whole very difficult and controversial analysis of whether a sitting president can be indicted and the current Department of Justice memo opining that he cannot be. And the fact that likely the way it happens is that any of these things that uh, Mueller turns over that seem to implicate the president likely get put into articles of impeachment uh, by a Democratic House, and then we see what happens from there. Well, one thing I think, by the way, is, is interesting here, because I don't think either Ken or I know exactly how this will end. No one does other than people in Mueller's office. Uh, but one thing I really liked about, Ken, about your view of Mueller talking through the indictments and memoranda and such that he's filing is that it's very much in line with what prosecutors usually do. Uh, you know, when I was a federal prosecutor, and I'm sure when you were one as well, we weren't writing reports to anybody. Uh, I never got a, uh, 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 you know, a uh, request to write a report to anybody. It's not typically what prosecutors do. Typically what they do is they let their indictments do the talking. And when there are press releases accompanying those indictments, they're pretty bland and they just repeat what's in the indictment. And here, you know, you could imagine Mueller putting as much in court filings as possible and then having a narrow memo that only focuses on matters that 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 might be of interest to Congress, like regarding impeachment, but um, could not be included in a charging document in some way. Is that is that uh, sort of uh, the plausible scenario you're thinking of? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it's it's different, I think, for indictments and for in information that someone agrees to plead guilty to, as in the case of uh, uh, Michael Cohen and so many other the people that Mueller has tagged. I think with uh, uh, information, you're much more telling the story kind of the way you do in a statement of facts and a plea agreement. You're, you're telling it in narrative form almost and with as much factual detail as you want. With an indictment where you're not sure how it's going to come out, in my experience, there's always a balance between um, – wanting it to tell a story and maybe that story gets read to the jury depending on how your given judge handles the indictment uh, and that's told to the press and that scares the hell out of the defendant because of the degree with which you describe his or her activities uh, but then also you have to balance that with not putting a jury to sleep when it's read to them and with um, the danger of with too much detail when you get some of that detail wrong and you always will uh, the defense attorney cleverly using that against you and so forth. Yeah, that, that's that's right. And um, Patty, do you have another question? 
Oh, there's lots, but uh, I'll take a, <laughs> I'm taking a couple from your your listeners. Uh, you mentioned whether or not the president could be indicted. Uh, one of the followers says, uh, I've heard that it's a DOJ policy to not indict a sitting president, but it's not law. If this is true, if Mueller has a great case, why not test it in court? At the very least, it becomes settled law. Well, let me let me take the let me take this one um, and as a, in a starting point and just say that, um, you know, one thing that I think everyone needs to understand is that federal prosecutors usually do not like to be um, putting themselves out there, um, you know, taking aggressive actions, uh, doing things that are um you know, uh, aggressive, uh, pushing the outer bounds of things. That's not how they operate. Federal prosecutors tend to be fairly reserved, cautious, conservative, careful people. Uh, That's just who they are. That was my experience as a federal prosecutor. And so, for example, Kenneth Starr, who it's worth noting was in a different position than Robert Mueller because he was an independent counsel under the independent counsel statute, which no longer uh, is effective, are no longer in effect. Uh, he had a, a legal opinion from a law professor telling him he could indict a sitting president, and he decided not to do so. And I think, um, you know, part of that is, you know, allowing Congress to do their thing um, is a is a more conservative approach. So even if Mueller thought he potentially had the authority. I think he may be bound by Justice Department precedent because he is he even though he unlike Starr, even though he is, uh, you know, has a degree of independence, he's part of the Justice Department. Uh, But also, I think just the the mentality that federal prosecutors have um, generally uh, leads them to take the more prudent approach. Uh, Yeah, I agree with you 100 percent on that, uh, Renato. I think that um, Mueller in particular, because of his. The fact that he is, you know, appointed under this regulation, he is more, I think, bound to the rules and regulations of the Justice Department in a way than Ken Starr was. I think his personality is already somewhat by the book and rule following. Um, I don't really see any serious chance that he's going to decide to try to make a test case by, in effect, defying um, the regulations that he's operating under. I could see at most him trying to make a pitch within the Justice Department that the uh, that particular opinion letter and regulation should be withdrawn. I don't see that going anywhere under this <laughs> Justice Department. So um, I, I don't see that happening. I think he sees his, his role very much as doing what the law permits him to do, and that means handing it off. You know, I think, you know, just also to react to what the what the listener was asking is that, you know, it seems to me that a lot of folks are out there looking for this big, broad, wide ranging indictment that's going to include all, a grand conspiracy of some kind. You know, I don't believe that such an indictment will ultimately issue because that is not the generally the way that federal prosecutors do things. They generally charge narrow crimes. Uh, because in, for a lot of reasons, but because the burden of proof is so high, because it's so hard to prove someone's intent, uh, and because uh, the judge can consider all of the defendant's behavior once you get a conviction on a narrow uh, crime. And so I don't know if we should be looking for Bob Mueller to and have the expectation that Bob Mueller is going to produce charges like that. Now, there, a state prosecutor may have may have different incentives. Um, you know, there are people who sit for elections and and are operating under a different sentencing structure. But that's that's what I would expect from Bob Mueller. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's there's very much a cultural difference between DAs and other state prosecutors on the one hand and, and federal prosecutors on the other. I've always found federal prosecutors to be much more risk averse in terms of charging. Uh, state uh, people are much more say, let's let's roll the dice and take it to a jury and see what happens and they can walk away and live with it if they lose. It's much more of a stigma for federal prosecutors to lose. And I think that they tend to sort of belt and suspenders everything and bring the very strongest cases. I mean, they have a sort of discretion that state prosecutors uh, don't. I mean, the state prosecutors generally aren't going to say, well, yes, this is clearly a bank, you know, this is clearly a a robbery of 7-Eleven or a murder, but uh, I don't think we'll take it. Um, Just, you know, this isn't what we're going to do. Federal prosecutors get that discretion to pick and choose the cases they're going to do to make a point. And because of that, I think they tend to take only the very strongest ones and only the very strongest charges out of an array of possible charges. That's an excellent point by Ken. And I agree with you 100 percent that. Um, there's kind of this myth out there, you know, federal prosecutors almost always win. And part of that is because federal prosecutors get to chicken, pick and choose their cases. Because if a crime, if a federal prosecutor decides not to prosecute something, they can just kick it to the state and let the state handle it. The state uh, and local prosecutors don't have that luxury. And so um, it very much has that effect. And that, I think, accurately describes the approach I saw in, in our office here in Chicago, and so, you know, I think that colors my uh, my um, view of things as well. And it's why probably a lot of folks uh, who read my my work, whether it's on Twitter or elsewhere or see me on TV, wonder why I may be more cautious than a lot of folks who are on television or elsewhere making very broad pronouncements. And it's because of that attitude that was pounded into me when I was a federal prosecutor and I think is shared by most people um, who have that job. So, I'm oh, sorry. And I don't think people really get the scope of that and what we're talking about. Uh, I mean, particularly in a large district like uh, Chicago, where you were, or Los Angeles, where I was, um, prosecutors, the federal prosecutors will have, you know, literally hundreds of cases they could take for every one they do take. So even if they start using the sorts of office guidelines that they have these days where, you know, we don't get out of bed for a fraud of less than a million dollars or something like that, there are hundreds and hundreds of cases out there. They can't possibly come near to probably even one percent of them uh, to prosecute federally. And because of that, they can really take the very strongest cases. And because of that, the agencies that um, investigate the cases know that, and they pretty quickly, because they want to get, um, they want to get indictments, they want to get convictions, they start to put resources into only the very strongest from the outset cases. I think that's right. And, and the interesting question is, you know, how would the context here change anything? You know, I do know, you know, in my former office, for example, when there was, you know, high profile cases of, let's say, public corruption or other conduct that was particularly um, in the public interest, I think my former office would take more risks and would at times um, charge cases that were, um, you know, not necessarily the cases that they would have otherwise chosen. I mean, one famous example is uh, Dennis Hastert. Uh, who was charged by my former office uh, while I was there uh, with uh, lying to 
FBI agents and structuring cash transactions. Uh, and, you know, that was done largely because he had uh, molested uh, underage, uh, you know, men and he had, co- you know, tried to cover that up. And I think, you know, there was a feeling that justice was served by getting that, you know, by 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 charging him with those crimes. And there are many other examples I could I could provide, I guess, you know, if if for those listeners who are looking to be um, what I'll call a Mueller optimist uh, in, in from their perspective, if they, they want Mueller to be charging more things or grander things, I think what they have to hope is that. You know he's willing to take more risks because, um, or 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 charge in a way that typically a federal prosecutor would not, because you know he views whatever conduct he sees is so incredibly important. Renato, we have uh, breaking news: Uh-oh. the uh, Michael Flynn, uh, the sentencing position by Robert Mueller's office has just been filed. Uh, seconds ago. Wow. Well, let's take a look at this right now, and we'll start giving our our commentary on the sentencing memorandum. So to me, when I look at this, Ken, first of all, I got to say, it is crazy that this was released while we were taping. It's fantastic timing because... Very exciting. (laughs) There you go. Uh, that, That is a good thing. And uh, you and I get to be right on top of this. So I, I like that. It was reminding me of uh, 2000 with the uh, reporters running down the steps of the United States Supreme Court, holding copies of the Bush versus Gore opinion, trying to figure it out, which was not easy, (laughs) and trying to explain it as they tried to read it and figure it out live on camera. The fortunate thing about you and me is that I think we're experienced at looking these doc at these documents. Uh, I am a fast reader, and uh, I've looked at so many of this th- these things that uh, I can usually write a thread quickly. And in this case, uh, the podcast is going to be my initial thoughts as I first look at this. And I have to say, Ken, the first thing that I see there's so there's a just so everyone knows what this is: the sentencing memorandum is filed by the government uh, in um, in every case that is prosecuted. And essentially, it is the government's view of what the guy, you know, the guidelines should be, what the sentence should be. They're going to explain the circumstances of the offense to the judge, because the judge has to consider all of the nature and circumstances um, surrounding that offense um, and surrounding the defendant, uh, him or herself. So the, the the prosecutors provide that information to the judge. Here, there's a special addendum that is filed along with the sentencing memorandum that contains um, a, a, a summary of Michael Flynn's cooperation, uh, which is in many ways to me the more interesting piece here. Um, I will say one thing that I found interesting about uh, Flynn's cooperation uh, is that, you know, up until just now, I thought, wow, Flynn was uh, kind of a dud for the uh, special counsel's office uh, in much the way that Papadopoulos was. In other words, when the Papadopoulos sentencing came around, what we learned is Papadopoulos really didn't cooperate much. The special counsel didn't think he actually did, did anything of value for them, and they were just essentially giving up on the guy. Whereas here, when you look at this addendum, it actually looks like there's more to come. Um, from uh, from Flynn's cooperation, it's going to yield uh, some additional 
um, charges, which are interesting to me because usually you'd wait until after that case is charged and ultimately goes to trial before you would uh, sentence someone in a typical case. That's exactly right. And you would want that as a defendant because you want to get maximum credit. Although here the stakes are relatively low. Um, Flynn simply was not facing much custodial time. The consequences from the sentence weren't going to be much worse than the consequences simply from swallowing a felony. So he maybe had an incentive to get this done sooner rather than later. But generally, the less the special counsel's office has to spill, the better. Here, you know, we're looking at this uh, document as we do this, released just seconds ago. And it talks about two things that Flynn did to help. One is he helped in some mysterious criminal investigation. We don't know what it is because the entire description of it is redacted. That is blacked out in the document. We know it's not the same as the special counsel investigation of Russia connections. Then the document also says that he provided substantial assistance. And that's a, you know, as you know, a buzzword uh, for your listeners. It's the buzzword for deserving credit that you gave substantial assistance. Um, in terms of the investigation of links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with uh, the Trump campaign. And he says that he assisted them on a range of issues, including interactions between the presidential transition team in Russia and then other things that are blocked out. Um, based on the length of it, the the juicy stuff, the sexy stuff is blacked out. Um and it appears that I would say there's about one, one and a quarter pages of blacked out stuff. So it's not a huge description. It doesn't go into great detail, but there's some meat here that we're not seeing yet. That's right. And I will say that I would expect there to not be too much detail uh, in terms of a cooperation. You know, generally that would be at a high level because even though something is under seal and redacted, I don't think the government wants and I say the government here, I mean the prosecutors, Mueller's team, wouldn't want their secrets to, to get out in any kind of granular detail, um, you, you know, even though it's under seal. So it, it seems to me like there's something fairly significant that he provided. As you pointed out, the first one says, you know, the defendant has provided substantial assistance, as you the words you use, in a criminal investigation, and then there's a lot of black there, like multiple paragraphs of black. So I guess right. to me this leads the question, this make you know kind of leads us to the obvious question: Why did Bob Mueller let the sentencing go forward now, when he could have the leverage of Michael Flynn's sentencing to hold over him? Um, throughout the course of that criminal investigation, because typically what a prosecutor would want to do is have that sentence hanging out there. So if Flynn goes south, and I think Mueller has seen recently like Manafort went south, it does happen. You know, he could hold over his head just like he did with Manafort. Well, hey, you know, I'm going to let the judge know um, and that's going to really hurt your sentence and so on and so forth. Here, he seems fine with letting uh, Manafort uh, excuse me, letting Michael Flynn get sentenced to a very low sentence, and I will get that in a, in a moment, and then potentially feel like he's off scot-free while he's got uh, cooperation that he may be asked to provide in the future. Sure. Uh, it is a bit of a mystery, but I mean, it could be to some extent that Flynn was just getting antsy to be sentenced, and, you know, Mueller thought, well, sure, whatever. And it could be, and I think maybe it likely is, 
that uh, Mueller felt that the what Flynn could give them was over. Uh, in other words, it, it implies to me that likely um, what he gave them is not something he's likely to be asked to testify to. Uh, he's not likely to show up in somebody else's trial. Rather, he provided intelligence that led them to other things. Uh, because in that case, if they, that's the case and they don't think that he's going to have to testify, uh, then they can cut him loose at this point. Well, that yeah, that would be, I'd say, the, the typical approach. You know, typically the the um, typically the um, the inference I would draw is what you said, Ken, which is that that essentially that he is not being asked to testify that, uh, you know, he has provided information that may have led to a prosecution or assisted in a prosecution, but he won't be brought to the stand. But what you given, you know, this is already a little unusual. It, it may be that Mueller has locked him into the grand jury. And what I mean by that is for this ling- prosecutorial lingo for um, Mueller has uh, brought him before the grand jury to testify under oath with a court reporter present and asked him uh, very specific questions or had him read a statement that makes it very explicit, uh, you know, uh, what he is testifying to, what he is saying, and that he's doing it under oath and that that would be a federal crime, a separate federal crime. And, you know, and he in that is sufficient uh, for, you know, because, like you said, Flynn is getting antsy uh, or Mueller may feel that the sentence here is so low that it's not really potentially driving things anyway. Right. Mueller really has a limited amount of sway over uh, over Flynn here, given the, the sentencing. And let's explain why that may be, because I think a lot of listeners are going to be like, Heck, I thought Michael Flynn was going to go to prison for a long time. And the, these two guys on the podcast are talking like Michael Flynn's going to um, not get much of a sentence at all. So, first of all, based on these documents, what sort of sentence would you uh, anticipate, Ken? Well, he was, you recall, he pled guilty to one count of uh, lying to the government, lying to the FBI during the investigation. And that typically, unless you connect it to some sort of loss of money, uh, generates a recommended sentence under the federal sentencing guidelines of zero to six months. And in a zone where the guidelines say, and the judge can just give probation if the judge prefers. So you start out with the person facing relatively low risk. Now, of course, uh, the federal sentencing guidelines are now and have been for nearly 15 years merely the recommendations. They don't bind the judge, and the judge can give any reasonable sentence up to the statutory maximum. But practically speaking, it's going to be, uh, you know the sentence is going to be low. And in my experience, um, 1,001 pleas routinely result in straight probation. What Mueller has done here in this is to explicitly recommend that a probationary sentence is appropriate. And I think that makes it highly likely that that's what the judge will do. Um, We saw for Papadopoulos, for instance, a similar situation, a a plea to a one count of 1,001 lying to the government. He wound up with 14 days uh, in jail, and that's not terribly unusual either. But this pretty much, I think, makes it as likely as is possible with a judge that he's going to get probation. You know, it's it's funny, by the way. Um, first of all, I absolutely agree with you. And I think this is the consequence. A lot of people are 
you know, uh, you know, have been talking about, um, w- you know, why there are charges to false statement uh, uh, charges in this in the Mueller investigation and what that means. And people have debated, are they important uh, laws? The criminal laws are not important. There's been a debate about that, which I don't think is worth getting into. But one consequence is, as you point out, under the sentencing guidelines, they are they typically get a lower sentence here. Um, you know, Mueller is recommending a lower sentence. I will say that that is not unusual to me because typically Justice Department policy is to recommend a guideline sentence. Here, as you note, they are recommending the low end of the guidelines. But of course, here's a guy who cooperated. So typically what would happen is the sentencing guidelines would come out to some range, let's say 41 to 51 months, and the government would agree to recommend a sentence below that. Here, if the if the the bottom end of the range is zero, uh, to give Flynn any kind of benefit, they would need to to um, recommend that that low end. Now, I will say the real benefit to Flynn here is that he got this charge in the first place because Mueller may have been able to charge him with other things. This is a fairly narrow charge. Um, but I will say, you know, on the other hand, Mueller does have to make the judge aware of other potential crimes that Flynn committed, you have to um, presume that that was done in what's called the pre-sentence investigation report, uh, which is not available to the public. Right. The pre-sentence report for your for your listeners is a, a very thorough document put together by the probation office at the direction of the judge that goes through each defendant's uh, personal background, history, education, employment history, health, uh, the facts of this case, and any prior criminal record, including other things they're suspected of having done. And so that would typically all come out. There really isn't much about that in this sentencing document, uh, notably. Um, And I agree with you 100%. He had to give him he had to recommend probation in order for Flynn to really get something significantly of value at this stage. But further, uh, earlier than this, uh, it's entirely possible that simply by letting him plead to this and not something else, he was giving him a benefit. Yeah, and this is the sort of charge I would I'll say that you would allow someone to get. This is called like a charge bargain, where you get you get charged with something less than you might otherwise. And this strikes me as the sort of thing that you could charge someone with that um, would give them a very substantial incentive to to cooperate um, because it would generate the low guidelines range that we're talking about here. I, I will say too. I'm going to note, uh, Ken. That uh, I you you have been trying recently to outrace me in tweeting Twitter threads about these subjects, and you have been tweeting as we podcast uh, on this. So I'll give you major props. I haven't really been paying very close attention, honestly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, wow. we do have a friendly kit competition going on about who among us can uh, do a tweet storm about a development sooner. Maybe. I think you're ahead on point substantially. Uh, I, I would agree. I would agree. I'll take. I'll take that. Um, so, you know, I, you know, when I look at this, though, I will say, 
Um, you know, to me, this sentencing memorandum is interesting. I think the most interesting thing that it signifies to us is that there is more, uh, significantly more remaining in Mueller's investigation. So some of the recent reporting, you know, Michael Isikoff, uh, you know, from who is now with Yahoo News, but I think most famously broke the uh, Lewinsky story years, many years ago. Um, you know, we had reported that, that, that defense attorneys are saying Mueller's looking to wrap up. That maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but it's certainly th- this document suggests that there's at least something significant yet to come. But otherwise, uh, not not a lot that really bl- blows my mind in this sentencing memorandum. Would you Would you agree? I agree. I protect. I predicted uh, that this would be um, not particularly stunning, and in fact, it does have more detail. And more interesting stuff than I anticipated, but it is not a bombshell. Maybe there's a bombshell beneath that redaction, but the public stuff, nothing in here is stunning. Or, you know, if if uh, if Michael Cohen's plea to lying to Congress is a, you know, Richter scale seven earthquake, this this is a a five at best. Yeah, and you, oh, uh, one, one thing I was just going to say is, you know, it's interesting because this is, I'd say, underwhelming compared to expectations because before we uh, had this podcast, people have been, you know, refreshing their browsers for hours uh, anticipating this. And and the Michael Cohen sentencing memorandum that his attorney filed that we were discussing earlier, I don't think there was much anticipation of that at all. And that turned out to be, to me, much, much more interesting than this. And perhaps that's what we're going to see in the future is that, it, it, you know, that some of the defense sentencing memorandums can be as interesting as the government sentencing memorandums. I agree. Uh, and I think, well, that will vary somewhat, of course, depending on the defendant in Manafort's case, uh, obviously, Manafort is now adverse once again to the special counsel. But in the case of people who are uh, still wanting to uh, be on the special counsel's good side and also angry at Trump, I think we will see more interesting information. Some of your uh, listeners are asking if uh, Flynn is allowed to talk about any of the investigation aspects or is he prohibited? So it would typically be a, a problem for him to reveal um, what was discussed with Mueller, any of the you know discussions that they had. I would think that uh, Flynn would be wiser than Manafort in that regard. Uh, certainly, he doesn't need a pardon uh, it, it, like the way that Manafort does. But also, he he has very competent attorneys. Uh, you know, I you know I I know of his attorneys. I never met them, but I know their reputation. They're very um, they're they're people who have a reputation to protect. I can't imagine that they would engage in the shenanigans that we saw from Manafort's attorney. Um, which uh, uh, effectively would, uh, to me, this would be very similar if a cooperator after a sentence started spilling uh, every secret he heard from uh, the the uh, federal uh, investigators. Yes, uh, th- this is Flynn's lawyers, uh, Cohen's lawyers, once he uh, pled, um, and a number of others have shown some some excellent uh, federal criminal defense lawyering, uh, which is definitely not the same as other types of defense lawyering and uh, it's not something you just blunder into. Uh, somebody asks, here's a crazy thought. What if Flynn actually gave them very little, but Mueller is using this filing to put the fear into other targets, including Trump? 
I don't think that that, you know, Ken and I talked earlier about what federal prosecutors are like. Like, <laughs> I, I don't see them as like Mueller is this trickster uh, guy. You know, there's the, I, I feel like throughout this entire process, the, the view of Mueller by folks has taken a life of its own. And he he's you know, he's sort of like an angel and superhero uh, wrapped into one to some of the, our listeners. You know, he's just uh, he's a very, very good, very effective, uh, very storied federal prosecutor. Uh, and former FBI director who is going to do things in a by-the-book conservative way, not trying to trick anyone. I agree. It's 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 not his style, and it's not federal prosecutorial style in general. It's not, you know, if if it seems like a trick and you know a, a gambit uh, you'd see in in like an Ocean's Eleven sequel, then I don't think a federal prosecutor does it. Okay. So, so Ken, I think let, just to wrap up, I, there's you know one point that I would, uh, I, I think I would want to put to you because I think it's sort of an interesting question that uh, is really magnified by this recent filing, which is, what do we expect the 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 real um, fireworks or endgame to be? And and I've got to say for myself. You know, other than potentially an obstruction report coming out of the Mueller investigation, which I think could be potentially very devastating, uh, just given what we know publicly, I think that you may end up seeing more fireworks out of the New York AG's investigation or the Southern District of New York, the federal prosecutors in Manhattan's investigation of um, the Trump organization and some of the things coming out of that Cohen uh, piece of the investigation rather than so, some of what we've been, uh, I think, expecting out of the Mueller investigation. I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think you're right. I I do not expect there to be some gigantic criminal collusion slash conspiracy uh, with the Russians that winds up being proven here. I don't think that's going to be the end game. We just haven't seen the the four quakes of it, uh, the foreshadowing of it that I would expect. I do think there is more of what's being derided as process crimes to come. I think there is more obstruction, more lying to Congress, and more lying to the FBI indictments to come. And I think there may be more campaign finance stuff like we saw with you know, Cohen admitting to uh, – campaign finance violations in connection with paying off an adult actress uh, on behalf of the president um, and more general misbehavior in some of these people's past, the way we've seen both with Cohen and Manafort. All that I expect, uh, who knows what Congress would make of it though. So even if um, Mueller, who is again, a cautious federal prosecutor, is not going to take the big leap and accuse the president and the president's campaign of deliberately coordinating with the Russians, coordinating on hacking, uh, coordinating on anything else, uh, it's entirely possible that a Democratic majority in the House would accuse something like that and that we could see something like that in an article of impeachment. I think their standards for evidence are rather dramatically different than the special counsel's. Well, I think that's an important point, Ken, because often when you and I are writing things, whether it's on Twitter or in my case, sometimes I'll write or we'll both write op-eds and so on. 
Um, I think people are surprised when we explain how difficult it is to prove things. And the way that I'd say federal prosecutors or a jury in a case where there's lawyers arguing on both sides and, and heeding the rules of evidence, the, the way that we would look at things is different than I think most people at home would. And it very well may be the case that Mueller has evidence that would convince most people in their living rooms of something. Um, but it's just not it doesn't fit into, I would say, the 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 the. Um, boxes that might be required for a federal criminal trial and the burden of proof that's required for a federal criminal trial. Is that fair to say? It is. Uh, but again, the burden of proof for, um, you know, uh, the burden of proof of Congress is a very diff different thing. Congress agrees and votes on uh, things without anything that humans would recognize as evidence all the time. And I think that the vote on whether or not to bring articles of impeachment is going to be largely political, as will be the vote, if any, in the Senate um, on the Senate trial of those. I think that's right. And I just want to say, because I know I'm, I'm going to get a lot of feedback about our predictions here. I, you know, I, I, I really one thing I value about your analysis, Ken, is that you're a very careful um, yourself, a very careful, cautious, um, deliberate thinker on these issues. I try to do the same thing. Um, myself. And I think, um, you know, people have heard different perspectives elsewhere and, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with those. Um, and some even on this podcast that I've brought from my guests. But I think that um, based only upon what we've seen so far and we don't know what else is on there, I to me, this is the, the conclusion that I think a, a careful person would draw. I agree. And I, I think your analysis has been fantastic throughout and also very measured uh, in a time when not much analysis is. I think there's a reason uh, besides being a grumpy old guy yelling at the millennials uh, to be <laughs> cautious about this. And that is that to me, um, what the special counsel has been investigating and what we've been seeing in America under the Trump administration has been something of an assault on the rule of law um, for, from as early as attacking judges because of their ethnic background and their suitability to hear cases to generally attacking the judiciary and its legitimacy uh, to the constant attacks, uh, you know, recently even, you know, on who's cooperating and who isn't. I think that we have to fall back to fundamental ideas about the rule of law. And those include uh, describing uh, the process as it is and not as we hope it would be. And I think the more sober and measured uh, our evaluation is, the more we come back to those values. Well, that, I think that's really profound, Ken. I, I agree with that. And I just want to let listeners know, if you haven't um, heard Ken before or read his t uh, tweets, you certainly could follow him on Twitter at PopeHat. Uh, and you also can listen to his podcast called All of the President's Men. I was a guest on there recently, uh, and you can check that out as well. Thank you so all much, the, Ken. All the President's Lawyers. Oh, All Thank the President's you. Lawyers. is more clever. Uh, sorry about that. All the President's Lawyers. Thank you so much, Ken. We really appreciate having you on the podcast. Great it job. was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. On Topic.